0: and absorbing again and again, and understanding again and again. So these special effects, we'll tell them to you one more time. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when those things are lived out in the power of God's spirit in us, which gives us the ability to live those things out, Remember, if you've been here, but if, if you've not been here, we'll, we'll refresh like 10 seconds. Remember, naturally, we don't crave to do those things. Naturally, in our flesh and when our human nature, the Bible says, craves to do actually the opposite of those things. In fact, it, it labels it as evil and says that our, our sinful nature is so corrupt that the desire of it is so twisted that it actually craves to do the opposite of what the Spirit does. And because it craves to do the opposite of what the Spirit wants us to do, that particular list that we see there, they're at war. And so they fight against each other, creating this these, these moments and these uh, seasons and these experiences in our lives that are difficult sometimes. But we also discovered that because of God's power in us, not because we're awesome, but because he's good and he's powerful and through his spirit, he's come to live inside of us and give us this power to do the things on this list, that we have the power to do them even though it seems easy and comfortable and convenient to do the other. And that's a real encouragement to us as believers and and to all of us who maybe you're exploring faith today. This is an encouragement to you. If you are in Christ, the power of God lives inside of a person who is in Christ through faith in his finished work on the cross. And that power gives us the ability to go against what we naturally do. And going against what we naturally do helps us What God do what God desires for us and to be what God desires for us to be. And that's an encouragement knowing that in my life, in my decisions, in my relationships, in my work, in my business decisions, in the people that I'm uh, are called to be and live with, the people that I'm called to lead, that I can and you can, with God's power, do the right thing in every situation. We can apply the beauty of those characteristics and those special effects in every moment, in every situation and circumstance and corner of influence that we have in our lives through God's power. That also is very encouraging. Knowing that with God's help, no matter what I find myself doing, no matter where I find myself living, no matter who I find myself leading, that with God's help, I can do what he has called me to do and I can be who he has called me to be. And more often than not, because of his power, those attributes and fruits and special effects can come expressing themselves out of my life to great effect in the world. Aren't you, aren't you encouraged by that? I'm, I'm not a response laden preacher, but that is a, an incredible list. And it is a list that with God's help, he gives us the ability to live out. So hopefully we'll, we'll absorb that truth. Hopefully we'll, we'll have, have, have learned something new from this journey and we'll have understood at, at some level that this is what God desires for us and this is what God in his power can do through us. We can have these special effects to special effect. Paul ends his letter this way in chapter six. We, uh, earlier in, in our time here at City Church as a church, hasn't been very long, but earlier in our time, we already did the first six verses here. So I pick up in verse seven in chapter six to kind of finish this out for us and to apply some of those truths that we just talked about forward here for just a moment. Verse seven says this, don't be misled, You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. If you notice in Paul's writings throughout the New Testament and in different ways, he he illustrates a lot with farming. He illustrates a lot with the idea of producing fruit, of sowing and reaping and harvesting. So he uses a lot of uh, agrarian examples uh, when it comes to this idea of how God works in and produces fruit in our lives and what he does in and through us. And so, here he uses that again. Basically, he says, you will harvest what you plant. You will get out what you put in. Don't be misled. Don't get it twisted. You will get back what you put in. Those who live, so, so, so then he, he says this definitively. So, then he comes back and says, this is how it shapes and works out in our life. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will will get back what? Will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But, here's the good news. Those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So, you, you get back what you sow in, what you put in. So, if you constantly sow into the flesh, into your human nature, which naturally wants to do destructive things, bad, negative Things The opposite of what God wants us to do. If you constantly sow in, give into that, that, uh, resource that, give time to that, give energy to that, then you will get that back in what Paul says, in decay and in death. It, it'll destroy you. But he said, if you, you sow into the spirit, if you sow into the list that we just looked at, that we sow into the character of God, we sow into what he desires for us, then you will harvest, you will get back everlasting life. You will get back vibrancy and relevance, not only to the moment, but for eternity. You will get back hope, you will get back joy, you will get back peace, you will get back Contentment and fulfillment like you never experienced before. If you sow into those things, if you invest in those things, if you put your time and energy and resources and passion into those things, you will get life back. Pretty good exchange. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm more interested in, in sowing into life than I am death. And, and I would rather have an experience that, that brings vitality and life to me versus the opposite. Paul says it's pretty simple. This is not rocket surgery. You get back what you put in. It's pretty simple. And in a minute, we're gonna unpack that just a little bit because I think it's a, a, a simple principle that I and I think we sometimes miss. So let's not. So he says, sow here, invest here. Put this in here, and you get this back over here. Everlasting life. Vibrant, abundant life that Jesus even himself talked about. And in verse 9, he says, so because that's worth it, and because that's not always easy, and because that's not always popular, but because that's the best, he says in verse 9, let's not get tired of doing that. Because it's worth doing So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So if we don't give up or give in or sow into things that will destroy us and we will sow into things that will bring life, and that is the person of Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit that brings not only vibrancy and health and goodness to my life, and purpose, but it also brings this idea of blessing. And he says it's a worthy cause, it's worthy of living and doing and not giving up on. It's worthy of your life for all of life. Therefore, if if a person is sowing into this, doing this, and even though it just feels right to do wrong, and even though it's easy to do wrong, God gives us the ability to do what is good and to do it consistently over a period of time in our life, to not give up on it, when it's easy to just give up on it, you know? Those poor game Gamecocks, you know? Tough. I told someone last night that I feel almost, I felt, almost guilty for enjoying their success because I was just so down on them when they started the tournament. I really was. I gave up. I thought there's no way they're gonna win a game. They couldn't beat Brooklyn Casey High School at this point. And you know what? I can't get excited about this. And, and then I was like the character from Major League Two that, you know, wanted them to, to, to get rid of the stadium and cover the field. And then when they started winning, he's like, yeah, that was me. I was enjoying it. But early on, I, I just wanted to jump off the train because I was giving up on it before it ever got started. And then when it got started, I wanted to enjoy that. I, I think oftentimes we do that in life. We, all, we definitely do that with what is good and what is right. Because in here, Paul illustrates that doing what is good isn't always easy, but doing what is good is always worth it. And doing what is good always brings glory to God and is for the good of other people. And it's worth sticking to, and it's worth having faith in, and it's worth doing when it's not popular, and it's not the thing that everyone else is doing, and it is not easy. And so, as a follower of Jesus, in myself, and for you, my desire and, and my hope is, is that we don't become fair-weather fans of doing good and doing right. That when it looks like things are trending down uh, uh, to do right and to do good, that I don't jump off the train before the run and before the journey gets started. And so I can uh, uh, experience it and enjoy it at greater effect when God is using me and blessing me in doing good. You don't feel guilty for celebrating and what the Lord is using you to do because you didn't trust them before and you jumped off the train when things got a little difficult like I did as an alumnus and a fan of my own team. That we stay with it consistently with God's help over time with our lives for all of life. He says, because when we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. So as we keep trudging along, as we keep grinding, as we keep doing what is good with God's help, even though it's not always easy even though it's not always popular. He says we do so first because it brings glory to God. It reveals the character of God. It does good things in the world. It changes things. It is for the good of others. And when we do those things consistently, we are ready when the opportunity comes along to do good and to do it to everyone we come in contact with to our neighbor, and the definition of neighbor in the New Testament is whoever we come in contact with. And then he says, not only we do we do good to our neighbor in the world, and whoever we come in contact with, we are especially good to those who call themselves believers like us. We don't mistreat them either. We don't forget about them. And he says, I may I never boast about anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because of that cross, my interest in the world has been crucified. My life has changed. My priorities have changed. My, My desires have changed. My passions have changed. The way I spend my time has changed. My resources, where they go, has changed. All of what was before has now been crucified has been killed because of Christ. And the world interest in me Not only has my interest in the world died, the world's pursuit of me because of Jesus' power dies too. It can't use me like it used to. It can't take advantage of me like it used to because of Christ. It doesn't matter whether we have been, I told you this word was going to pop back up, whether we have been circumcised or not. Remember this was the religious practice, that the people that were combating Paul's message of saving grace in the gospel were saying you needed to do to be saved, that you had to believe, but you also has to go through this Jewish ritual of circumcision, and I'll just leave that there, to be considered saved, and Paul is writing this letter to combat their theology, and to combat their ideas and to combat their poor, terrible teaching that says you must trust Jesus and then do this. No, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's faith in Christ alone for salvation. And so Paul says, one more time at the end of his letter, he says, it doesn't matter whether you've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. What counts is if you are in Christ and he has changed your life through faith in his finished work on the cross that has killed your passions for the world and has killed the world's passions for you. So Paul is being definitive here and he starts out with this idea that says, don't get this twisted, people. You cannot mock the righteousness of God. You cannot get back what you put in differently. He says this is, a, this is a fail-safe principle in farming and in life. We have some people in here who know farming. My, my, my dad is with us this morning, and my dad knows a lot about farming and, and, and probably knows more than, than he, he probably cares to know. But in farming and in life, this is a fail-safe principle. You get back what you put in, period. You cannot plant squash and go out and hope for cucumbers, you cannot plant an orange tree. I love going home to my wife's uh, area where my wife is from in, in, the, in Central Florida. Well, really, it's, it's not Central Florida. She's not from Central Florida, but she's from the Space Coast. But I love going there and driving around that area and then driving 50 over to Orlando because you just see miles and miles of orange orchards. And it's really a cool thing, and if you like oranges and, and whatever, and really, if you just enjoy seeing the beauty of that, it's a, it's a pretty cool experience if you're paying attention. What's interesting is, is that if you plant an orange tree, you cannot be mad or frustrated when it doesn't produce apples. And this seems like a simple principle, but it is one that is fail-safe and true, not only in farming and in an agrarian sense, but in life. And in a spiritual sense. What you put your time into, your energy, your passion, how much you put in, you'll get back. If you put in very little, you'll get little back. If you put in a lot, you'll, you'll get a lot back. It, as Paul said, if, if you sow into good things, good things will come from that. It'll harvest that. If you sow into constantly into bad things, it will reap death. It will eventually destroy. And so for us, that needs to be something that we, we grasp and that we latch on to. Uh, Paul wrote about it earlier in 2 Corinthians when he says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. So God is offering us something here that shouldn't be a hard sell job. It, it, for the salesman in here, this, this, this should be probably the easiest sale you would ever make. Sow in generously. Give a lot to God and to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit. And out of that, will reap a lot of blessing and goodness and what he desires. Give very little into that, and guess what? You'll get very little back. If you give very little to the Lord, give very little to your relationship with Christ, give very little to the power of the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life, expect to be pretty marginal, pretty nominal, pretty average, and pretty inconsistent. And don't be shocked when you struggle and don't understand truth. If you give, it's not gonna solve your problems. It's not gonna, uh, all your problems it's not gonna keep the, the world from having an effect on you. It's not gonna keep bad things from happening. It's not gonna keep you from suffering or whatever, but it will allow you to reap life in the middle of even those things. And joy and peace even as you suffer. See, when the, when, the, when the apostles write about that in the New Testament, they're not being fake. They're not blowing sunshine at you. They're saying that life is hard, life is difficult, and I look forward to the time in which I'll see Jesus, but in the middle of this, I rejoice in my suffering because I'm sowing in and reaping life. And this is what God has given me even during tough times. So you sow a lot into that, you'll reap life, especially when you're going through some difficulty. But if you sow very little into it, you'll get a little back. And if you sow into death, you'll get that back too. The flesh is not to be tampered with. The, the flesh cannot be trusted. The Bible says that the, the heart, the human heart, is dark and is wicked and desires no good thing. And so when we sow into that which we naturally do and which we sow into those things that are dark and twisted and evil and are, are not good and we constantly sow and tamper with that, it ends up coming to great effect in our lives and oftentimes it's never good. I think we've all been there. You cannot escape this principle. You get back what you put in. And Paul says very distinctly, you should put in to the power of the Spirit. You should put in to following Christ. Because out of that, no matter what you're going through and what you're walking through and what you understand or don't understand, you will reap life. But if you sow into this other deal, you'll reap death. And just don't be shocked when you plant this particular crop thinking you're going to get something else. It always comes back what you planted. Seems pretty simple, right? But we need God's help to help us do simple things. To help us pursue him in a way where we can live practically and spiritually in our lives and these things can happen for us with God's help. Because it's worth it. And because it's worth doing and it's worth doing with our lives. That's what Paul says next, let's not get tired of doing what is good. Because at the right time, we'll reap a harvest of blessing if you don't give up. Following Jesus is not a moment that we remember or an accomplishment that we admire. It is a life. It is a lifestyle that we finish. It is not a memorial. It is not something that we look back fondly on at that moment in which we knew and felt the love of Christ and cried out to him in faith to rescue us, from salva- rescue us from ourselves, to give us salvation from the oppression of sin, to set us apart to this life abundant here and eternal. It's not just savoring that moment, that one shining moment that we look back on, we pull out when we need a reminder and dust off and look at the image so that we can somehow remember the feeling that we had. That is not following Christ. And it is not an accomplishment to say to our friends and to others that we think it'll impress that we did this. Yes, I'm a Christ follower. I'm a Christian, as we say a lot in America. It is not something that we, we did and that we, we accomplished on our own So we can't even talk about it anyway for us to admire and for to admire in ourselves. Following Jesus is all of life, a full life to the end of life. It is a lifestyle that God in his power helps us with, helps us in the power of his Holy Spirit to to express his character in the world, in our lives, and to finish that life. It is worthy of living And it is worthy of finishing. I had a professor in college that was my uh, advisor. I went to USC. I was a history major. I know, riveting. Um, And my advisor had like a, a little poster in his office. And I had him for two years. And so I went to his office several times and And I would always see this poster on his wall and it intrigued me. It was a quote by William Faulkner, the, the great American writer and novelist. And it said this, they are not monuments, but footprints. A monument only says, at least I got this far. While a footprint says, this is where I was when I moved again. And I remember being a, a college student, and, and I, I, was in, I was an English minor, and so I did a lot of American Lit, and, and, but I just don't remember that quote from Faulkner. And, and I would look, and it was right behind his desk, and you couldn't help but see it every time you, you walk in, and, and I would be like, what, what does that mean? That sounds really good. But I don't, I, don't, I don't know the context, I don't know what it means. Essentially, what he's saying is that our lives are not monuments. They, they aren't something that we admire and that stays still and that we remember from times past. That they should be more like footprints. They should be, be visible and able to see where we were and then where we moved from. And this is what living for Jesus is. It's it's not a monument that says, "Well, we got this far. Awesome. Good. I'm good." Well, when was the last time you when was the last time you did anything that looked like you followed Christ? When was the last time you did anything for Christ? When was the last time you served somebody? When was the last time you did good? When was the last time you thought about somebody other than yourself? When was the last time you worshiped Christ? When was the last time you were example to someone of Christ? That's a footprint. That's a person who says, this is where I was when I moved again. I was going forward. My life is vibrant in Christ. It is a lifestyle. It's just not something that happened once and then it's over. It's not an accomplishment that I talk about. It is going, moving. It is for life. It is all of life. doesn't stop. And that's why Paul says, like Faulkner, we can't stand still. This is, we can't get tired of doing good. This is for life, all of life. And people who live the Christian life as if they were a footprint, always moving forward, being able to look back where they were, but always pressing on to that next mark. Those people are ready for the opportunities when they present themselves to do good to everyone. That's what Paul says next. And and this is important because our natural tendency is, is not to do good. And our but, but when we do good, our natural tendency is to return good for good. So if you do something good for me, my natural tendency is to want to do something good for you, right? I struggle with that big time. If you if I go out to eat with you and you pay for my 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 food or you do something nice for me, there's just something natural in me and in my I have this debtor's ethic. Like I, I want to go and take you out and, and I, I got to get you back. Because that's why you did it, right? You did it so I get you back. And a lot of times we find that that's not the motivation at all for people. They just want to do, do good. But in us, naturally, is the desire to return good for good. So we're okay with that. And evil for evil. Somebody does something bad to me, what is the natural reaction? To just love them, receive them, No, that's not my natural reaction when someone hurts me, harms me, harms my family, harms my wife, harms my friends, uh, uh, does something that, that injures and upsets or whatever, my natural tendency. It happened this week. Someone hurt my daughter. My natural tendency was to go and hurt, to inflict pain, right? I'm just being real. Don't be, don't judge me. You know you're the same way. I'm joking. I'm not joking about the feelings I had. I'm joking about the judging thing, because I'm sure you guys are righteous. Amen. I thought so. And it's amazing how quickly that shifts, isn't it? How how natural it feels. And boy, I'm going to be honest with you. It feels good. That 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 release sometimes, like oh. This is what I'm supposed to do. So when someone does evil to me, my natural tendency is to return that to them and to make them feel that way. But in doing good and in being a footprint as we move forward in living for Christ, and we don't set up a monument and that's all it is and all it's ever been and we look back on it occasionally to 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 feel good about our accomplishment if it is truly a vibrant, forward-moving lifestyle that Christ is helping us control, that the Holy Spirit is controlling in our lives, then we go counter to what we naturally do. And so the, the believer, the Christ follower, does good, doesn't do good for good only, does good. So we don't wait for somebody to do good for us to do good. The Christ follower, and it's explicit in this passage, That what the Christ follower does in Christ is good. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, patience. Got that in there, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. That's the one I always leave out. The Christ follower does good, period. Doesn't wait to be prompted by you doing good to me. But what sets the Christ, what's the special effect of the Christ follower too? Here's the special, special effect. When evil is done, the Christ follower, the scriptures tell us, returns good for evil. And I can tell you right now that it takes the power of a holy God It takes the power of the Holy Spirit that the Bible equates to the power that raised Christ from the dead. That's a lot of of power. Some good stuff. You can get out of a ditch with that power. That power, I'm telling you, is the only power for me that can allow me to return good for evil. Because without that, my natural tendency is to get you back. But in Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that's why Paul says you can't give up. You've got to keep walking with him. This doesn't end. This is for life. He gives us the ability and the power to do good, period. And then when something really bad happens to us, we avert our natural tendency to return evil for evil and do good for evil. And that stands out in the world. That looks different in the world than they're used to. And he says, we don't do this because we're so special and because we get it. We do this because of Jesus and because of the cross. He said, we we don't boast about anything except for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And guys, boasting and bragging means we take credit for something. It's like boasting and bragging on our team as if we played. We brag about what Christ did because we don't deserve any credit I did nothing. I'm, I'm pretty confident the Bible teaches me truth that, that I didn't pursue God, that he pursued me. And he did you. And he did that in his grace, in his mercy, and in his love. And he died on the cross. And he did that to bring glory to God and to redeem sinners. And he gets all the credit and he gets all the boasting and bragging because without Jesus, I would sow into destruction and into death. I would get back that in my life all the time, and I would return evil for evil and occasionally good for good. But because of Jesus, He put to death the desires of the flesh and the desires of the sinful nature, and He puts to death the desire for the world to pursue me, to pull me in. And so I can not only fight it internally, but with God's help, I can fight it externally when it comes after me. And so therefore, because Christ did that for me and does that for us, I give him credit for it. And and don't you want to? Don't you want to give credit where credit is due? Don't you want to brag on, a, on an act like that and on an act of love like that and on an act of grace like that? Don't you want to give credit when you get rescued? Don't you want to give credit to somebody who saves your life? Don't you want to give credit to something that changes you and, and allows you to live? Isn't that where the credit should go and doesn't it feel good to give that credit? I mean, why would we disconnect from the thing that saved our lives? We don't do that. It's, it makes no sense. I think of that, the story of the US Airways pilot, Chelsea Sullenberger. You guys read this story? Remember Sully? Remember that crazy scene, waking up and watching the news and seeing that plane floating on the Hudson River? And you're like, how did that get there? What happened? What is going on? It's in New York City. We know all the implications of all that. What happened today? Well, then we find out by unpacking the truth and and the news and and hearing the real story of what happened that day that that this particular man, Chelsea Sullenberger, Sully, had the presence of mind and the acumen and the skill and the ability to react when a bunch of flock of Canadian geese flew into his engine. John's. Thank you. Praise Jesus. And so right, so, so the, the thing was that he could have made it, but he, he didn't and he proved to them that why and, and and it was just this unbelievable act of skill and bravery and courage. And every person on that plane was saved, including him and his co-pilot and and, and man, it was this unbelievable act of heroism, and, and, uh, and then he went through the ringers from the airlines because of, of liability and because of, of looking bad, and, and you know how that all goes, and, and if you read the story or isn't there a movie, there's a movie, right? so if you 've seen the movie, you kind of know how all that went. I was struck let me tell you what I was struck. me and my wife saw that movie. Let me tell you what I was struck by, and when I was, the image that struck me wasn 't necessarily that haunting image of, of that plane in the river. that was chilling. And it it was amazing to kind of walk through uh, the events of how he got to that point and the the quick decision that he had to make to get there and the wisdom that he used and the talent that he had to do it. And a willing participant in his co-pilot to help him do it as well when he could have easily pushed back in that moment. That was all impressive. That was all amazing. It's all gripping. It's all unbelievable. And it's all why we like those stories. But that wasn't the most gripping image to me. This was. In the movie, they, they set the scene where he comes in and they have assembled all of the survivors. And he didn't know they were gonna be in the hangar and they were gonna honor him, and these people wanted to see him and they wanted to thank him for saving their lives. What what struck me at the end of that movie is that they showed the real pictures of those images. And one of them you can find online uh, up close like this. And I wanna turn your attention to the bottom, your right hand screen and look at the looks on those women's faces. And really all of them except for that poor guy right above them that looks confused. <laughs> I want you to just, just, just absorb that for a second. Look how they're looking at him. That is a look of affection, that is a look of joy, that is a look of admiration, and that is a look of of just pure desire to give credit to the person who saved their lives. This is the emotion, this is the look of which the believer stares fondly at Jesus. This is the look of which the believer and the follower of Christ should have toward the cross, not the confusion. And and maybe that's his that's his joyous face. Maybe it is. Everybody has a different emotion, the way they emote and the way they do it physically. But but this is. And then there's the guy in the middle who's not sure he's supposed to be there. Right there at the bottom. And who knows what he's thinking. Maybe he's, this man is standing there and he's thinking about what would have happened had he not been saved. What would have happened to his family. Maybe he's a business owner. Maybe he has, maybe he has the responsibility of leading a lot of people. Who knows. But those two women's face captured me. And this is the face of someone who has been saved Someone who has been rescued and who looks and is happy to give credit to someone who did it. And this is the look of the Christ follower. We stare fondly at the cross. We gaze fondly at Christ. We look with love and joy and passion in our heart and affection and desire to brag on him and give him credit for saving us. And that's what pure joy and affection for a rescuer looks like. And that's what the life of the Christian should embody. As we live in the world, as we do good, as we return good for evil, and as we try in the power of the Holy Spirit to live these special effects, these fruits of God's spirit as we sow into that. What counts is that you've been transformed. What counts is that you're a new creation, not that you're religious, not that you're good at doing the Christianese thing and you can talk the talk and you got the bracelets and the CDs. We people don't listen to CDs. Um, You got your own iTunes, you got your playlist. I'm sorry, I was stuck in the 90s for a second there. that you can line up all the boxes, that you look good from the outside. It just, it just is not formative of a Christian life and a lifestyle that finishes. It is one that is driven by Christ and by the power of his Holy Spirit, and it's one with the heart of a person who gazes fondly with affection on its rescuer and gives him credit for what he does in my life and him alone. All that matters is that you're transformed, not that you're good and religious. A true relationship with Jesus and plain religion are not just separated by different ideas, but by a different way of life. A a person who is redeemed and saved and who is sowing into life, into the life of Christ into the Holy Spirit, pursuing him, giving their life and energy and time to that, sowing much, getting much back. They just live differently than a person that just plays the game. Because here's the thing, if we play the game, the game gets old and we quit. We get tired of doing good. That's my testimony. Legalism, trying to line it all up and juggle all the, the balls, keep them all in the air so I can please God. You know what, I got tired of it. You know why? Because I didn't have a relationship with him. I didn't have a new life. I, I had a, a, a new way of trying to solve old problems. And it didn't work for me. And that's what religion offers. It offers a new way to solve old problems, a very old problem, the problem of sin, that cannot be solved that way. Jesus offers a new and eternal life. And that solves The problem once and for all, now and in eternity. I'm going to pray for us.